Welcome to the Honest Field Guide podcast, a weekly show dedicated to winning in entrepreneurship. I'm your host, Ginger Birkenbuehl. I'm the CEO of Burke Creative, a leadership, brand strategy, and visual identity agency dedicated to helping scale brands and assist with their adaptability with the market. On my show, you get to eavesdrop in on intimate conversation with business leaders and inspired entrepreneurs designed to give you tips and strategies so your own business can thrive. Subscribe and join me each week for laughter, inspiration, and honest stories. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Honest Field Guide podcast. I'm Ginger Birkenbuehl, and today is a really, really, really good day because I'm speaking with influencer Dr. Akila Kaday, founder and CEO of Change Kaday, a consulting firm providing people and companies with anti-bias training, original content, and thought leadership strategies that support anti-racism, diversity, inclusion, equity, and belonging activities and initiatives. And what's really crazy is back in 2020, during the olden treacherous times, the olden treacherous times, I was seeking a creative consultant with a lot of knowledge related to healthcare and equity in the United, in the United States. And I was really looking for a black woman, right, who I could look at that spoke bluntly and publicly, transparently, and with a sense of urgency around topics related to Black people in the pandemic, I really needed help in this space. And I think I was like, how am I going to do this? Who, what, am I, what should I look for? So I went to Google and I typed in, I think I typed in Black women in healthcare or something like that. And somehow I stumbled across this amazing article called Black Health Matters, Healthy Minds, Healthy Bodies. And it was written by Akila Kade. And I was like, oh my God, who is this woman? It was like blunt and direct. And I looked her up. I saw all these, these amazing online profiles, beautiful branding, well-cultivated, immaculate, you know, very strict requirements for me. Like anybody that I want to work with or that I want to bring on my platform, whatever that looks like. I have to have beautiful branding and it was perfect. And the greatest thing is like when I decided I'm going to reach out to her and see if she'll help me with my project. Um, she actually was like interviewing me before <laughs> I agreed to get hired. And I was like, you know what? She's the bomb. She is perfect for my job because she's actually asking me questions that I was just happy to hear these questions. So I'm sitting here thinking, you know, I hope she says yes. I hope she wants to work with me on my project. And she did because our conversation that we had over Zoom was an absolute delight. We connected immediately. It was like, I recognized her. She recognized me. I was like, oh my God, I love her hair. Everything was great. And I'm so excited today to welcome Dr. Kaday to my show. Welcome, Akila. Thank you. It's great to be here, Ginger. And um, it's a, a wonderful opener of our meet. <laughs> yeah, it was pretty, it was pretty, it was pretty perfect, actually. So before we get into your professional trajectory, right? Because you have a lot of amazing things going on. I want to know your black girl growing up story, right? Your black girl creative girl growing up story. It seems like all of us have one. What were your parents like? You know, what were you like as a little girl? Were you like, I want to be a doctor, I want to be an artist? What was happening? Yeah, so my life is different than most because I'm a twin. So I've always had my biggest fan and partner. So whatever 
I've been interested in, she's been interested in, and we do the same. And as adults, um, I come from um, parents who both were well-known in our community and um, both had very unique stories. So my mom was the first person to graduate from high school on her side, um, as well as college, which is a big deal. Um, My mom recently retired as a uh, doc, a PhD, who's known for doing work in nonprofit and educational spaces as a leader there. And then my father um, immigrated here from Haiti. So I'm a first generation kid. And so we had very high expectations and standards as a result of that. And um, we knew both myself and my twin sister knew at the age of nine, we would have to have at least a master's degree. So that was instilled in us. Uh, My father uh, retired as a lawyer and as a diplomat. So early on, being that we're first generation kids and the nature of the work that my parents did locally and globally. We traveled the world a lot. And that's where we started to see lots of things and taste lots of things and experience different cultures, which I think is important being that I have lots of different cultures that make up me. Um, And so that's really when the creative stuff probably started to show up. Um, My sister is a principal of our architectural firm and an architect. And so we do a lot of stuff to support her with looking at houses that are being built and art projects. And I did want to be a doctor. So she would play hospital with me and take care of bugs in the backyard and make little hospitals and stuff. And then from there, because I had two parents who are leaders, I just started leading and doing stuff uh, throughout school. And that's continued ever since. I'm wondering, you said you traveled the world, which is great. You had, you got to experience a lot of different cultures as a young girl, which is which is amazing and a miracle because a lot of um, young, young children in America don't necessarily get to do that, right? I feel like European children have more access to multiple cultures and, you know, different countries on the continent. But um, did you recognize injustice and racism at an early age? I mean, did you see it? soon or did it come later? Yeah. I mean, I'm from Haiti. My family's from Haiti. So, you know, um, we would visit, we've had pass, I've had a passport since I was two. Um, and so you could see the differences. My father's family was more of, uh, also a well-known family, um, in the island. So you could see the distinct differences from my family structure and other families and communities that was there. And then when I was 15, 15, 16. Um, I was a student ambassador for the United States of America and spent a month in South Africa and went from all different places from the greatest heads like Johannesburg and Cape Town, but also um, spent a few days in Soweto as well. And that was when I realized being Black in America is definitely a difficult thing. And I went about two or three years after the end of apartheid. And so I was discriminated against because I had money. The rate from a U.S. dollar to Rand was a lot. A lot of white Afrikaners were confused. They were wondering why I had on shoes, why I spoke the way I spoke. Um, We would have um, black Afrikaners not want to serve us because they're accustomed to serving white people. But in Soweto, um, where there is full spectrum of the life cycle from extreme poverty to wealth, um, there were kids who were just 
playing with this makeshift soccer ball, you know, and just very happy. Um, there was a sense of community and everyone was looking out for each other. And there was a, a sense of pride with where they lived, who they are, their ethnicity, their culture. And that had a profound impact with why I started uh, moving away from medical school uh, and into public health. How old were you when that was going on? I'm trying to get an understanding of when you started, when you started actually come to co- coming to a consciousness around racism and, and um, difference. Like what, what age were you? And then were you then saying, is this when you were started looking around and saying, wow, it's really, really messed up and look at America. It's even worse. I mean, what was sort of happening in your head? Because the reason I ask is that there's some young people that really don't pay attention to things. They're not really sensitive to this. I mean, you said, yes, I, I recognize discrimination. I've had you know, challenges because I'm from Haiti, but there's other people that sort of, it's like they're oblivious. What was the turning point for you? Was there something that actually happened or, or were you always aware? The, there's, there's no profound turning point or anything of that nature. It was more so something I was always around. My grandfather on my mom's side um, is also a, a noted person in the city where I grew up. He had a black history museum. He had a, pictures of Haitian um, dignitaries and leaders um, on his wall. So, you know, I just grew up knowing that there were injustices. It was very clear. I would experience things being one of four Black kids in my K through eight school, you know, so it was around and I could see the distinct differences all the way down to swimming with friends as kids. They were very confused with why my hair was straight and then it became curly. So it was just always around. My mom was on the COINTELPRO list. If people don't know what that is, I highly recommend they look that up. I was always advocating for myself and other people who are viewed as underrepresented, um, which is, I like to call it intentionally ignored, um, just for advocacy, literally is in my blood. I am really curious um, about when you were when you were in high school. What was your high school experience like? Um, because that's such an intense, painful time for some of us, and some of us it's not a painful time. But for me, it was it was not easy. High school was an interesting experience because I left a K through eight to go to high school, so I didn't have the middle school transitional experience. I didn't have a locker. I didn't change for PE. I didn't do any of those things. And the K through eight, I went to, I graduated obviously sixth grade and I was the first seventh grade class and I was the first eighth grade class. And so what that meant is I was always top dog for, you know, three years. And so going to high school, it was further down the road. Um, So there were more people there, a lot more people, like thousands, opposed to the hundreds that I was around. Um, Black people didn't like me because of how I look, my eye color, my skin color, the way I talk. I'm not going to force you to like me. So I just kept doing what I was doing, which was hanging out with the white kids and hanging out with the Asian kids. Um, I took up sports, uh, started playing tennis my um, freshman year because my sister and I have been playing tennis since we were five. And so we just did that my sophomore year between the sophomore year and um, 
sophomore year, I got into student government and student activities. And that was fun. You know, um, that particular high school, we had a lot of power and I was doing it with one of my oldest friends. Um, we have literally went from kindergarten through college together, undergrad. And so we did a lot of stuff there. And um, so I did that my sophomore year. And then between sophomore year and junior year, that's when I went to South Africa for being a student ambassador. So when I came back, um, the I'm from Sacramento, California. The Sacramento Bee did this big story, um, myself and, and my twin. And we were, um, you know, it's before social media. So we had a big, huge picture that was in color. And that was a big deal. It was the equivalent of going viral at that time. Um, and it happened to coincide with the first week back in school. So then everyone thought we were important celebrities. So they just wanted to be our friends. Our birthday is always around Labor Day weekend. So we never can have our birthday when we want to. So we usually have it a week or two after school starts. A whole bunch of people wanted to come to our party. And because I'd been working like with student government for so long, I knew all the radio DJs because we'd have to bring them on campus. So had the top radio DJ come do our party and it was the party heard around the school. And then all of a sudden we were super important. We were the popular girls, myself and my sister. And so it was fine after that. And more, you know, black and brown people wanted to talk to me and get to know me, which was great. But then... Um, as that popularity increased um, and I became senior class president, student activities president, and I did all the proms. So a lot of power. I had a lot of power. Um, there were some some black and brown girls who didn't like me. So they followed me around with the video camera, like an actual camcorder, dating myself to insult me, to see how I'd respond. And I just walked myself to the office, called my mother, who was assistant superintendent. I cried and she was like, they're not worth their time. And I was like, okay. And that was it. It was horrible to be bullied, but they forgot that I had more power than them. So my senior year, I ran, I had my own class down to curriculum and, and grades. And I gave them all the ones who were in my class, low grades. <laughs> I mean, I'm like thinking to myself, I wish you were in my high school with me because <laughs> I mean, some of the things you're, some of the things you're describing, you know, remind me of, you know, some of my own experiences, you know, being mm -hmm. bullied, um, for sure, because of some of the reasons you just talked about, um, not really, you know, fitting in perfectly in the slot of what it's supposed to be to be a black girl, mm -hmm. you know, and it's, it's, it's chased me my whole life. And I've never, it's never changed me or, you know, it's never haunted me or anything like that. I've still... This is part of growing up, right? As a black girl. Yeah. But the difference is, is I was firm in my power. I knew what I wanted to do at nine. My parents supported it. Uh, my sister knew what she wanted to do at nine. Parents supported it. I supported her. She supported me. So going to high school, I was like, this is just the pathway for me to go to med school. When I graduated, people were like, we did it. I was like, I have like eight more years of school. So I was affirmed in my purpose. And I knew that that was not normal because I saw friends in high school struggle and what they want to do and what they want to apply for. I saw friends struggle in college, but I was firm in my purpose. And um, a lot of that comes from the foundation of how I grew up. You know, it, it's, it makes me wonder um, what happens to black girls that aren't firm in their purpose and how do they actually, you know, manage to make it through and ascend to, 
opportunity? Well, we already know the, the data shows that there's imposter syndrome that happens and that's the best case scenario, right? There's that. And then you can go into worst case scenarios where, you know, it's either dropping out of school, getting into teen pregnancy, abusive relationships, right? Because when you are told that you always have to work twice as hard or you're not as beautiful or your hair type is this or this or your size and why is your lip like, why are your lips like that? Why is your butt like that? All these things that happen, then we, um, it, it's pretty easy for black girls, young girls, and for black women to question themselves. We also know that the data shows that there's over-sexualization of our bodies as black girls, and as black women. And so that means there's a higher, um, there's higher incidences of rape. There's higher incidences of expulsion from school, suspensions from school. And so, and that's just getting in, into education. And that's just repeated throughout the career that a black woman can have. Cause it's all the same thing. The mean girls, the bullying, the societal issues, the factors, how we're over-sexualized, white people, men, like all of these things come into play. And so if we aren't in a position where we have, you know, a parent, a guardian, a mentor, a teacher, a supporter to help affirm our purpose, then we become the statistics they want us to be. What I've always been confused about is the, um, you know, with black girls and even black women, why don't we help each other and collaborate with each other? You know, why do we attack each other? I don't, I mean, I've always, I've always been very confused by that. Even as an adult now, that is the one thing that I still don't completely understand is that um, black women do not lock their hands and arms together all the time to help each other. Uh, it's a direct correlation of the enslavement of black people in America, right? So if you have certain women who are favored by their enslaver, they have privileged treatment. If certain women have children by their enslaver, whether consensual or not, those children are working in a house. They're literally put on a pedestal as a result of that. We can add size to that too, you know, to go back to texture, hair color, skin, all of that is there and it's ingrained. It's further instilled in the very groups and organizations that women put together, Black women put together to support each other. If you look at deltas versus AKAs, you will see a distinct difference. And that's due to the paper bag, the brown paper bag test. That a lot of Black organizations outside of fraternities and sororities, but gatherings that would say brown paper bag test for your listeners who may not know, if you're the color of a brown paper bag or lighter, you can come to this event. You can come into this house. You can participate into this group. And that causes distinct differences as well. With all the things that you've been working on, um, just in your mind, in your life from, you know, childhood, as I'm listening to you describe, you know, your, your, your journeys through different cultures and then being in South Africa, which sounds like it was, could be, could have been traumatic. And I, I can't even imagine what that would have been like, but not traumatic at all. It, was it wasn't wonderful. traumatic. No. When people hear like South Africa or low income communities or, you know, going apartheid. to, well, yeah, apartheid wasn't traumatic. It was a moment of understanding and respect for what my mother went through, for what my grandparents on my U.S. side went through and family members to be here. That was a gift because I can't go back in time here in the U.S., but I could in 1997 to see that. And that gave me a different outlook on life. 
it wasn't profound because I had been versed in, in what things were. My own mother knew about the importance of Haiti and being the first Black country to have a successful revolt and no longer have enslavement in that country and to be the first Black country. She knew that as a kid. I can't help but wonder if that's why she was um, excited by my father. My parents are not together anymore, but to know the power that comes, right? Remember, I am from a shithole country. My family is from a shithole country, as said by the outgoing president. But there was a lot of power as a result of that. And so you're talking about something that is a little harmful, where it's just like, well, if you go somewhere where there's low income Black people, it has to be traumatic. But if you understand the systems of what that is, that's a moment to appreciate what you have and to understand what you can do moving forward. I want to talk about your entrepreneur journey and your branding launch a little bit. All of these things have formed the Changed Today. When did you decide to become that? And what's the meaning behind the name? The reason why Change Today started was I was being um, bullied and discriminated in the workplace to the point where I was finishing my doctoral program, doing that full time. I was working full time. Uh, my doctoral program was four to seven years. I did it in three because I actually really don't like school. So I powered through it. And so when I graduated, a month later, I was diagnosed with major depressive disorder or severe depression. Um, and that was a result of not being able to process this constant bullying and discrimination that was happening in my full-time job. And so I started Change Today as an outlet to pour back into myself so that I could do work that I would enjoy because there are so many obstacles and barriers. And I want to make it very clear that my depression came as a result of pure exhaustion for having to prove myself when I didn't have to prove myself over and over again. I'm like, you hired me for the job. You asked me to lead this project. Um, and so, yeah, I, I just went into it. I started as a side hustle. It wasn't a full-time thing. When I was able to get into a position where I could apply for another job, I um, applied to a job. Got this job. I was an executive, coaching executives and supporting them with systems change and diversity and change management, all this other stuff, which was great. In a one-on-one -on -one meeting, my boss, who was an older white male, looked at me and said, I didn't think you were that smart when I interviewed you, but you are smart. I almost spit the water out of my mouth. I was just sipping. <laughs> it was good. Right in your face, right? Right in your face. Right in your face. I just didn't think you were that smart, right in your face. So I said, why would you say that? At that time, I had 15 years of experience. I came from a company that was three times that size. I run the things before. And he was like, oh, well, I guess that's offensive. I'm sorry. And I said, yes, it is. I'm going to have to rebuild my trust with you. And then he just fired me the next week. And I was still like in my probationary period. It was fresh. And so when I was fired, I had never been fired before. I worked in healthcare and public health and nonprofits. So I'm totally accustomed to being laid off, but not that. And so um, I had to reflect and say, do I have it in me to go back to another nine to five job? Because I could 
upon that reflection, see the bullying and harassment, discrimination. I was too black. I wasn't black enough. I was too educated. I wasn't educated enough and really trying to fit into this box. So I asked myself, what could I do about it so that other people and selfishly other black women wouldn't have to feel the way I felt. And then I went full-time into change today. It's been six years. I have my own stories around all the times I was interviewing at white male run you know, design firms. Mm. And I actually wrote an article about being black and in an elite design industry. And some of the things that some of the white men said to me when I was interviewing or the jobs I didn't get, oh, it's, 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 it's painful. I mean, it's just painful. And I, and I know that your story and my story, it's not unique. It's just that we don't share our stories. Um, but I want to get back to Change Today because um, this to me is the reason I found you. And this is why I share your platforms with all of my clients and everyone I know, because your branding is amazing. And I'm not trying to lighten the conversation, but I have to say that as a black woman creative myself, and as someone who holds, I hold myself to a very high standard, aesthetic standard. Um, I believe in extreme excellence and quality. And it's not because I'm black, it's just because this is who I am. And I think that, you know, the power of your branding aligns really well with your name and your message and your image and the way you speak. Um, you know, everywhere I see you online, it's beautiful from the crisp typography, um, your curated fashion, the backgrounds, the shoes. I really want to understand because just putting aside the actual, you know, crux of the work, um, I want to understand your branding development process because when I think about the real work that you're doing to marry that with this beautiful branding, I find extraordinary. I think it's great. It's, I mean, I don't, I don't feel like what you're doing is, is at scale. I don't think there's a lot of black women doing this amazingly beautiful creative work, especially as an entrepreneur versus working for a large company like a Coca-Cola. Okay. So what was that like when you decided, okay, I'm never going back. I'm opening my own company. It's been six years. What was it like in the beginning when you were, when you were starting to put the pieces together for what this was supposed to look like? The brand concept happened two years um, before I went full-time into the business. Um, I'm a stylist. I'm a creative. I'm a photographer. So I just like things the way I like things. I can customize to the client that me being my favorite client, um, I can just put together what I want. So as far as like the name, uh, today is French and it comes from my father. It means soldier. So we create soldiers of change. That was very easy to do. <laughs> Business-wise, when your name is in your business, you don't have to do a DBA license. So it actually saves money. It's also very easy to trademark too, because it's your name. Um, so these are things that, um, made creating the brand pretty easy, but quite frankly, I'm literally just my true authentic self. So I don't need to conceptualize stuff. I'm like, this is what we're doing and this is how it's going to happen. I also have all the power too, to make that happen. And so I had to, with that, marrying it together, it was just like, okay, well, because of my true authentic self, I'm just going to tell my story. This is how we ended up here. And people like the about page because they get to know, you know, about me and what's happening there. I think about what would people want to know if they're coming into this work. They want to know, you know, if I'm featured or not, or if they have resources, they could get what they need. Oh, the podcast, here's the podcast. 
And then I'm always developing relationships with actual creatives. So the logo for the podcast was literally from someone who booked me for a talk who happened to be a cartoon artist who did a cartoon for me for the talk. And I was like, can you do this for me? You know, so I'm just all about using my network, being my true authentic self and having the power and resources to do what I want. So where do you get your visual and color inspiration though, right? I mean, are you suggesting that, you know, you're sort of using your network and and getting ideas and applying them to your space? Or do you put together mood boards on your own? Like, what is what is what does it look like? Because when I go to your platforms, there is a, uh, a consistent aesthetic that, you know, in a traditional, you know, professional environment, it would already be prepared and managed and planned out in advance. Um, I do a lot of stuff in my head. I, I don't like mood boards. It's not a good use of time for me at all. So if I'm styling a shoot, for example, I just want them to tell me the aesthetic that they want. And then I'll give them different options. They will never get a mood board from me. They just have to literally trust the process. Um, But again, like when it comes to the design of the website, a lot of people don't realize the power of white space because white space is how you can highlight words and typography. I help white people all the time. So anytime you see something white, it's about white people. If you go to my Instagram, you would see last year in 2020, any message um, that was put out, any words or quotes that were put out were on white bricks. Do you know why they were on white bricks? No, but I'd love to. Because white people were doing the work brick by brick. No one knows this, but that's why I use white bricks. And this year in 2021, any quote is on a crumpled piece of white paper because white people are learning and unlearning. So you're writing something, you're like, no, this sucks. And you what, throw it by the trash can. And you write something, oh, this sucks. You throw it by the trash can. But then you're like, wait a minute. And you go back and you open it up. You're like, this makes sense. That's why it's crumpled paper. It may stay like that. It may change next year. I have no plan except for <laughs> doing something that feels good, and right and fresh. I love that. I have no plan. (laughs) No, I have no plan. I literally just do what I feel. The reason why it's hard to be a creative is one, people are doing it in in other spaces, right? Where there's limitations. If you add intersectionality on top of that, being a woman, being a Black person, being from the LGBTQ plus community, there's stereotypes and barriers and issues and all this other stuff that comes on top of it. I don't have that. So I can do whatever I want my business. And it's it's also why I'm able to, to be more creative because I couldn't do that, what I wanted to do in nine to five spaces or wasn't viewed as important in the health space or public health space. I love that you said trust the process. And that's why you hate mood boards because you feel like if you do a mood board, then someone's not trusting your vision. Can you talk a little bit more about that? I only I have selfish reasons for that because I work in the corporate space. So I'm not actually doing work for myself the way you're describing. As a, as a professional designer in brand strategist, I have to do that kind of work. And I, and I do agree with you. I feel like some, at some point when you do these things, you're realizing that the people you're working with are not trusting the process. They're not just letting you go. Now, granted it's their money. And so they have a right to not trust the process. How do you get people to trust the process? I mean, do you sort of, or is it, or is it a matter of, you know, you just can't work with people that don't trust the process. I mean, what do you decide? I mean, how do you even decide? Maybe you say, there are certain people that I won't work with because if they ask me for a mood board, they're probably not the right fit. Yeah, I have a lot of power. I've had power for a very long time. I sit in my power. 
And so if they don't want to work with me, then that's fine. Do you know why? Because lots of other people do. I think a lot of people get stuck on the fact, like, I really wanted that client. Why be with someone who doesn't want to work with you? I was asked to do this special project for an art industry. And they, you know, were, were doing a, a bidding process. They would really love you to do it. And then they came back and said, well, actually, we're going to go with someone else. I could sit there and be like, oh, my gosh, they should have gone with me. No. If someone doesn't want to work with you, you don't need to work with them. And I know some people will say like, but the money, great. If they're already being difficult, then is it worth the money? Because they're going to be difficult, right? Throughout the process. Again, acknowledging that I have a lot of power there. The other part is I'm also very strategic. Why do you think my name is Dr. Akila today? Do you know how hard it is to say no to a doctor? It's pretty hard. And I make it very clear that I'm the expert. You hired me to do something. So we can work collectively. We can have a reciprocal process because I'm always learning from my clients as they are learning from me. But if you hired me to be the expert in the thing that you are deficient in, you have to let me create. I love it. I feel like you should have gone to art and design school and gotten a doctorate in product design (laughs) or something. No, because I can do whatever I want now. I think a lot of people don't realize that discrimination doesn't discriminate. I I do everything, everything from beauty to beverages to pots and pans to furnishings to health spaces. I do it all. And I'm able to put that perspective in there. I have done innovation, like human-centered design. I did a fellowship in that. Um, so I have that in mind, but I've always been a big picture thinker. I've always been strategic. Um, there were times where I did want to live in a box, but then I realized I didn't need to. I was fighting to get out of the box. I no longer fight to do that. And that's really what it is. If you are a creative, you have to be able to create. So you recently became an ambassador for Lululemon. I want to know if you were to advise other Black women that are branding themselves in the hopes of landing really huge deals like this, what's the first step they should take to make something like this a reality? We're in a different time period forever. And that's due to the um, unfortunate murder of George Floyd. And so there's more intentionality around partnering with Black creatives and Black women. And a lot of these companies don't know how to solve that. And so if you have a creative project that can solve how they can move past performative action and advocacy, that's a way to get a deal. Um, I was approached by Lululemon, so I didn't go and out to get it, but I had already been consulting with them for a couple of years prior. Um, so it wasn't a surprise when they asked me to be an ambassador. They took more intentionality around um, having ambassadors who also were ways for them to show how they were working towards being more inclusive. So every ambassador has to have a sweat life. What is your sweat life? And most ambassadors are Olympians and, you know, yogis and meditation experts. And I said, my sweat life is dismantling white supremacy. And that's the only way I'll do it. And I said, yeah. I love it. You know, I've been reading about you and George Floyd's murder really changed you deeply. I feel like it changed you more deeply than other people I know that are in business spaces. You changed, to me, from my perception of what I'm looking at, you changed your business and your voice. Um, Can you talk a little bit about what happened to you um, in the context of business? 
the world decided that I mattered. I already knew I did, but the demand of business was through the roof. Um, there was a demand of how do we, how do we, how do we, because businesses didn't want to be brands didn't want to be uh, performative, saying the wrong thing, doing the wrong thing. Um, and so I had to scale pretty quickly. And remember when all this started, it was the start of the pandemic we're still currently in where um, everyone was trying to get loans and grants and businesses were closing. And I was fine. Like with the projects I had, it's definitely fine. Just going to make it through the year. Um, but this demand was unheard of. So I had to live in a place as a black woman of, well, this is an opportunity to build generational wealth. This is an opportunity for me to grow my business so I can help empower other people who are part of my practice, my employees. This is a way for me to potentially set myself up because last year I was like, I have no idea how long this is going to last. I have no idea how long white people will be interested in doing something and doing the work. And so that's what I did. This year, um, my tone is the same, which is still dismantling white supremacy, but I'm moving, I've moved away from allyship. I think allyship is a waste of time. And so I'm much more clear as to the how and why allyship is a waste of time. It's a pathway to being anti-racist, being an accomplice. But um, so that is how and why I changed my voice. Many people, millions of people are in positions where the murder of George Floyd has changed many things about where and how they show up in the workspace. Because that's when they realized for the first time that the C-suite didn't care about them or the company didn't care about them. And some people who had been advocating to do things for diversity for BIPOC, Black, Indigenous, and people of color, now all of a sudden they're like, hey, so do you want to do this thing? Hey, can we pay you to do this? Or we're not going to pay you and to do that. And so the Remembrance Day, so the Day of Remembrance for George Floyd, May 25th, moving on, will always be a reminder of how someone was able to, the bittersweet day, grow, perhaps, change or how they were not valued or how much more has to happen. Are you sensing that black people, black, even black professionals, I mean, we might as well just talk about black professionals because that's what we are, but are you feeling like we are starting to now say this is what's required and we're getting more opportunity to say no, or we're having more internal courage to say no? I feel like there is a change. And like you, I wonder how long will this last? Like, what do we have to do to keep up this pressure so that we can keep moving forward and making demands and making change that goes beyond the performance to actual action? And I say this as a person that's had a company for over 20 years that has not yet built the generational wealth that you're saying that you've been trying to build as well for the last six years. I'm hoping that there's more of us that are making demands and saying, you have to pay us this or you can't do this. And is this also partially because of the horrors of 2020, which also included pandemic. There's no such thing as black professionals. There's no black professionals. I will explain. You are in a creative space. You have a little bit more freedom, but what is a professional hairstyle? What do you think a professional hairstyle is? Oh, you know, the black hair piece is definitely another conversation because I have fully transitioned from- It looks great. You know, like hair straightened hair to my natural hair. I mean, this is something that- I never even felt my natural hair before to this extent. Like I haven't had natural hair in a long time. And I don't do, I haven't gotten a weave or anything. I've never done braids. 
I've always had, you know, hair straightened, right? That's my point, because you wanted it to look professional. I mean, yeah, I agree with you. I mean, I, me and my hair, and I've talked about this with, with my employees, I have a brand associated with my hair and my hair brand has not been quote unquote an Afro. It hasn't. It has not been natural yeah, hair. But the simple fact that you're thinking that is oh, I know. the reason why I don't use professional. That's not in our language. You're absolutely correct. I mean, you're you're yeah. you're totally right. I am I am definitely going through my own professional black girl transition from where I was and where I thought I was and who I thought I was as is associated with my hair to where I am today, which is not has not changed me or not changed my creative output. It's really just changed my perception of when I look in the mirror, what do I think? What do I think about what I'm looking at? So you're right. I mean, you have to, yeah. If can you help me with this? <laughs> rock your hair how you want to rock your hair. I mean, my hair is curly when it comes out of the shower after I washed it. Why am I going to sit there and, and flat iron my hair? Now, I for sure have flat iron my hair. That has happened in the career, but I bring this up as an example of how the word professional is a detrimental term to Black people. So it's just something to consider. When I was being bullied at the job that I was talking about earlier, and I was like, that I'm moving on. I'm checking out and made the decision. The night before I or something, I found an African hair braider, got my hair braided up. I would have never worn my hair braided in the workplace because I didn't want the questions. I didn't want people to touch my hair. I didn't want people to under figure out, well, your hair was up here. Now it's down here. I didn't want to deal with any of that. But I wanted to celebrate my Blackness. So the other thing to think about with the term professional it goes to dress, it goes to language, it goes to demeanor. And all of that is part of white dominant culture. So I talk about black creatives, black founders, black leaders, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm making it specific to who we are. We don't even as a firm talk about professional development. We talk about career growth, learning pathways, because professional development isn't for us to grow and excel, which is why a lot of these companies, going back to what the question is, a lot of these companies are in positions where they were doing, we're talking about creatives, hashtag pull up or shut up, right? Putting that information out there that was coming from the beauty business and expanded into other spaces. They are realizing that their professional terms they have, their professional standards, even culture fit is all to maintain white dominant culture. So we're in an interesting position right now with black people and with white people. We have white people who are on a pathway of allyship, becoming anti-racist or an accomplice, who are in a position of awakening and, and reckoning. These individuals work in these creative agencies, brands, you know, whatever that business space is. They are holding leaders accountable. Then we also have Black people who are realizing they also have privilege too, because privilege tends to be synonymous with white privilege or a certain amount of wealth, but usually rich white people. Black people are realizing they have their privilege, whether they have a lighter complexion, they're in a leadership role, or I don't know, they're the one Black employee on the team or the entire company where they have to say, no, I don't want to be the token. No, I don't want to be the person who's going to put together a statement for an entire brand. No, I don't want to join the, <laughs> you know, diversity commitment. So you hope that's the case though, right? I mean, there's some, you know, there's know some Black people that like being one. They like being the only one there. And I struggle with this sometimes because that's selfish. But then I'm also thinking to myself, well, you know, we don't have enough. And I know that some people say that's a deficit mindset, not an abundance mindset. But some Black people that work in spaces, they, you know, they have families, they have parents to take care of, and they have to do what they have to do to get through. And they can't, they, they, they're happy to be the only one. 
because they need to be. And I don't shame them for that because there's so many of us in so many different places. We don't get our needs met. Right. And we have to do what we have to do to survive and to get through. We're always in survival mode, right? It seems like it anyway. We're always trying to stay alive in whatever that looks like career-wise, physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually. So, you know, when you talk, when you talk about an awakening, I wonder, and we talk about like what it's going to take to keep the pressure up and to keep moving forward so that we can get the things we need so that we don't end up going to the zero net worth place that they're projecting we're going to hit right in 20, I think 2038 or 2048. But there's always that one person, you know, that is very happy to be the only crab in a barrel. So there's two reasons why that happens. I hear what you're saying with, you know, a provider and taking care of families, but people can always apply for other jobs. That's just an excuse to not do it. So I don't feel bad there. But on this, on the other way, um, with people, Black people wanting to be the, the lonely, one of few or only in a company, is that that can be assimilation of white dominant culture and white supremacy, upholding values of white supremacy, because there's a certain amount of comfort that comes there. They believe they operate and behave in a certain way that they will get the benefits that come from upholding values of white supremacy. Both sides, people are hurt. Both sides, right? So there's that part to consider. I'm firm and true. I've seen it firsthand with how Black people are making decisions of what they want to do. Do they want to participate or not? Are they going to ask for money or just not be part of the thing? Are they going to move to another department? Are they going to leave the company? And that's the part that's important. Um, I will never stop advocating for my humanity and equality as a Black person and from other people. That's a path I've chosen. It's, it's what I do for my work and career, but it's part of me and my being my true authentic self too. I did it in other spaces where I didn't have the title of, you know, global diversity expert, just always been around. So it comes down to choices. You know, I love this conversation because I feel like this, this sounds so grisly and horrifying when I say this, but with the work that you do and you've been doing the combination of um, the horrific murder of Mr. Floyd and the pandemic has really changed, I think, your your work. It's changed in a way that more people need your help, right? I mean, more people need someone like you to just tell them the truth because they can't face their own truth. They can't. They can't face their own truth. They can't go into work and look at themselves in the mirror anymore the way they used to. And I'm talking about white people. I mean, some Black people too. Um, and, you know, it's just, it's important to have someone like you out there speaking this because in this pandemic, COVID-19, it's felt to me like a war against Black and Brown Americans to destroy our health and wealth. And I know it's not just about us, (laughs) but I am here in America and I'm an American, right? You know, there's really no one, no one has been taking the lead to try to save us, to help us. Um, we're not even getting the shots we need. We're, 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 we're drowning in, in lies about myths and, you know, what's going to happen to us when we take the vaccine or we're going to turn to Zion. It's just absolutely insane. Um, but I'm wondering, with all these things that are going on, has there been any incredible focus and conversion of your work? And and because of all these things, has have, have things become tighter and more urgent and more and more persistent for you? And have you been able to to figure out a way to translate that into 
how do I continue to build my business and make money and help people at the same time? Because I feel like you're doing something that a lot of people haven't been able to do, which is help people be a black woman and make money at the same time. So where I am now makes sense. It happened sooner because of the incidences of last year. The differentiating factor between Ahmaud Arbery and Breonna Taylor was that George Floyd happened when people were forced to sit in it. They couldn't go to brunch. They couldn't go on their summer vacation. They literally had to shelter in place, right, and stay home. Brown Taylor happened amongst the, what are we doing as far as the country? Are we going inside? Still very important. Ahmaud Arbery happened in February. So you had a big one in February, Brown in March. We had George in May. And so it was just that people are at home uh, for the shift. Now, as far as me and my brand, I've always wanted to have a consulting firm. Always. I Once I decided I didn't want to be pre-med because chemistry is awful. And then I realized as a Black woman, I wouldn't be able to be the mom I wanted to be. Or um, I would have to deal with discrimination and I have to work in healthcare insurance. I knew that I would operate in different businesses, different, different fields all about, you know, making the world better so that I could have my own firm. And so that's what I did. So where I am is to be expected. But I'm also a role model of how other people should operate. The very reason why I'm successful is because I do what I want. Because I'm my true authentic self. I'm chief creative officer for Represent Collaborative. So I work on storytelling and PR pieces and creative pieces. On that side, I'm a host, I'm a podcast host, I'm a writer, I have series, I am a facilitator, I do on air, I do all the things to make me stay firm in my power, to be my true authentic self in general, also as a Black woman, and to hopefully inspire people. I hate that people call me an influencer because I've never sold flat tummy tea. And have no plans to do so. <laughs> so several people are like, can you post this? And I'm like, no. Can you share this? Like, no, I don't know you. I don't know what you're about. Don't know the brand. Now there's wonderful collaborations that I have, like with Lululemon um, and other companies, but it's because they're doing the work. So it makes sense. Life is really not that hard. If you believe in yourself, there's things you can do. I get there's a journey to get there. Yes. But we are in a position where for the first time in history, there's technology that changes things. There's social media, there's reckoning, there's awareness that allows movements to happen and grow. Obviously, we have the civil rights movement, we have all these things. But the sooner people realize that we have to dismantle white supremacy, the more there can be people like me. You have a lot of courage that many I people... I have no courage. You I don't think you have courage? No. I, there's so many people that are they are scared to do what you're doing, that they're scared to speak out. They're scared to, especially Black people. But we already live at the risk of death every day. So why not say what you need? That doesn't make any sense, right? So I'm not courageous. I'm not strong. I, I whatever. I, on the other side of fear is something. It is 
hope, it's excitement. It's like, oh no, never again, whatever. I'm just myself. And it just worked out. How do you measure your success, Akila? How do you measure your success at what you're doing? I, I mean, what are the benchmarks to tell you that you are, you know, getting the impact that you're looking for? When I see a flicker of a light bulb or a light bulb for a client, that's the part that is a measure of success. I can pay my team on a regular basis. I can support them with their goals and aspirations, what they have. But I'm also still a business. I like money. This is why I work well with my clients. I I also want to make money too. You want to make money? Great, because I want to make money. (laughs) Um, Because like we were talking about earlier, I'm in a position to build generational wealth. What I have done will change a life for whenever I am able to have a kid. And then that trajectory will continue. You know, I love this because a lot of people think that Black people are supposed to do philanthropy, not make big money. It's an idea that... me. I know not you. And I love that. I mean, I'm like, I'm like, I feel like a lot of times, you know, people expect us, probably white people, yeah, expect us to pay our dues before we can actually build a lot of money and um, or build wealth. And I love hearing you talk about this because I think more people, more black people need to love money and understand that no, you you don't have to necessarily start a 501c3, you know, to help other people. You can have a company that makes money and have an impact and still help people without being a philanthropy. I connect everything back to white supremacy and I always will. So, you know, Africans came here in the 1600s, not by choice. And then, you know, all the fun stuff happened. Finally got to emancipation. Juneteenth is coming up. That's an important time. June 19th, 1865. When you are told you are worth nothing, then you do not ask for what you are worth because you don't know. You can't just be like, oh, Oprah or Beyonce, very important people who I love and admire. You can't just have that be the only thing that you see. You know, it has to be the teacher and the principal that you're, you know, around in school. It has to be a C-suite person at the creative agency or senior designer even at the creative agency. We have to have that. But in order to get there, we have to, everyone has to acknowledge how there is a lack of humanity and equality. So back to your pressure point, the pressure has been on ever since we've arrived here from moving from property to three-fifths to being a human, having the prison industrial complex, which is tied to a lot of the brands and creative ads and agencies, right, that are around to see how can we show up to be better for ourselves? How can we, as Black people, figure out what we are worth? How can white people figure out how their privilege that they have, even though Black people have privilege, is causing issues with someone's worth and opportunity and growth and financial wealth? There's so many things around in America that have put us in a position where we feel less than, and that's the intention when you enslave people. That's the intention. So we may be free, but we will limit ourselves. Mm -hmm. I don't do that. So the simple fact that I was like, no, I'm not going to do this thing or, hey, you should think about this. Or if you work with me, I'm going to be transparent with you and I expect you to be transparent with me. That all of a sudden is profound because of the very white supremacist system in which we are in. If more of us were similar to me, not, you know, to fully be me, but as far as speaking the truth, being transparent, seeing our worth and our value, then our rates would go up. And our value would go up along with those who have more power, who are learning 
how to use their privilege for good. Yeah, I love that. Our rates would go up. We need all of our rates to go up. And um, I want to understand your current platform. So your IG channel, it's in your face. It's elegant. It's eloquent. I call it a saber truth tiger. (laughs) Um, You know, you put some tremendous things on that, on that page. And, and one of the quotes I'm going to, I'm going to read out loud because I, I just love it. If your allyship is centered around your comfort, you're doing it wrong. I think I'm going to read another. I love that one. You also have my love language is dismantling white supremacy, which is absolutely amazing. Totally powerful. And there's another one that I want to read too um, from your IG channel. Oh, here's my favorite. America's systems are not broken for white people. They benefit them. And that, my friends, is why some white people stop doing the work. Where do you get your inspiration for these? Are you living this? I mean, where is some of this coming from? My head, I just write it down. That's it. I just write it down. I mean, four days a week. I only work four days a week because Friday is my self-care day. I talk to people all the time. So my subset of of experience from what leaders are going through, white people are going through, white leaders are going through, can be hashtag inspo for what I have to say. But quite frankly, this questioning that allows for pause and comfort for white people is always a place of, there's a teaching moment here. And so I literally write it down and post it. I don't have a schedule. I don't do any of that. It's how I feel. (laughs) You know, it's cathartic for me. I mean, I go to your channel, it's cathartic. And I've shared it with so many people. Um, It's pretty amazing. You also have the hashtag Black Truth Project. Can you talk about what that is? Who is the audience and what do they want to know from that? platform? So the Black Trick Project was a collaboration um, funded by Lululemon um, in partnership with my company, Change Today, and the other company where I'm the chief creative officer, Represent Collaborative. And it was just about telling stories of the Black experience. We don't have humanity in some of our Black stories because, again, it's either Oprah, Beyonce, or it's another murder. So it's just highlighting everyday Black people. We have a doctor, we have a creative, we have a teacher, um, myself, we have an Olympian. We have people in there who are talking, and an Olympian is not normal, but when you're a Black Olympian, let me tell you, it's just telling stories. It's for Black people to see themselves and to feel validated, feel a sense of community, kinship, because they understand what it's like when they have a hoodie on, perhaps. Um, And it's a continued call for allyship to move towards becoming an accomplice for white people, to hear our perspectives and stories. There's so many white people who are afraid to have conversations with black people, afraid to have black friends. Not for everyone, but that is right there for you. So if you were trying to figure us out, that's the place where they can figure it out. How do you go from allyship to accomplice? It's very simple. It's actually moving from Practicing using your privilege, so learning how to speak up, learning how to advocate for the least represented in the room, um, asking how to help. The practice, allyship is practice, moving to an accomplice. An accomplice is aware of their privilege, they're aware of their bias, and they see how it can add to upholding values of white supremacy. They're understanding systemic 
and institutional oppression towards BIPOC, towards Black people. So these are people who brush their teeth, they put on their deodorant, inject their privilege, and buy us every day. People are confused by, white people are confused by accomplice because they think it's like a partner in crime, but it's a partnership to do the work. Black women do a lot of the work as far as advocacy and anti-racism work and education. And so I like to explain it this way. If white supremacy was a beanbag chair and a white person sat down in it, they would be comfortable. It's also really hard to get out of because you're like, oh, this is great. I don't want to get out of it at all. They have their favorite popcorn with whatever pairings they want, watching their favorite movie, living their best life. That is what white supremacy is. That's upholding values of white supremacy. That white person looks to the left or the right of them. They'll probably see lots of different people in the room, but they may see me, the black woman who came in, who was told I can't have a, a beanbag chair. So I had to sit on the floor and I asked for my popcorn, but then I had to pay for it where it was complimentary for them. All right, pay for it. Then I asked for a movie that had representation so I could see myself and all of a sudden I was being hostile, challenging, difficult, or an angry black woman. So if they see that, like the Hispanic Latinx person doesn't have a beanbag chair, the AAPI, Asian American Pacific Islander doesn't have a beanbag chair. In addition to me, the black woman who doesn't have a beanbag chair, being an accomplice means what are you doing, big and small actions and steps every day to make sure someone next to you has a beanbag chair. White supremacy in general isn't necessarily a bad thing. There's white supremacists, Proud Boys, KKK. White people can be racist. White people can be white supremacists. That's true. But what's wrong with all of us, everyone, having that comfort that comes with white supremacy? Being able to drive down the street, being able to get a loan that doesn't have a higher rate, buy a home, get the job, make it past that CV because of a name. What does it look like if we all had true humanity and equality? Because only white people have it. And that's what being an accomplice is. Do you feel like you have gained status because you are much bolder and stronger in speaking out about white supremacy than, you know, prior to 2020, if you weren't really speaking about it so boldly? And I think I I ask because a lot of Black women are afraid to lose status by really speaking out boldly. These are people who are thinking about other people. I don't think about that. I don't think about how other people view me. That's a waste of time and energy. I believe that I deserve humanity and equality. I believe my brothers deserve humanity and equality. Whatever black man I'm gonna marry deserves humanity and equality. You deserve humanity and equality. So I'm gonna say anything about that. If people don't like it, you prove to me why I do not deserve humanity and equality. That's all it is. It's, and, and if they're proving it, it's for their comfort. We're like, I don't want to do it this way. I, like to, I want things to go back to normal. <laughs> this is so much harder now. Okay, well, if you do that, then, then I'm still living at the risk of death every day. Being profiled, being followed, being ignored, being passed over. And so that's why I just literally am the same person. More people are interested in me. That's the only difference. I think that more people are interested in a lot of Black women, right? Absolutely. I feel like we are kind of the it girl. You know, we also have all of Georgia, right? So when we're looking at the runoff elections, there are so many important Black women who are part of that process. And that was an awakening experience as well, you know, post 
the the Floyd effect of, of the previous year. So there's that. But Black women always have been taking care of the Black community. I know that. And so I guess, you know, why... I love speaking with you about this is I'm always trying to understand fundamentally how women can be financially independent, but I'm in, I'm particularly interested in helping black women figure out how to make money because we are not funded. And I think it's because of some of the things you're talking about. I feel like it's related to our reticence to speak truth all the time. I think that we take shortcuts because we have to. We stay silent for fear of losing our jobs. We don't take that job because it might not be a status position. And we stay in place. We stay in place. Yeah, but staying in place does nothing. Like if you aren't happy or fulfilled, if it's affecting your mental health, your relationships with your friends, family members, your what do you have to lose by saying something? What will it take then um, from your perspective for Black girls, Black women, Black young women to start, I don't know, demanding, getting paid, being more brave, speaking the truth? What what has to happen? I mean, do we all have to go into some therapy? Do we need to take, you know, human-centered design classes, you know, I'm just, I'm trying to figure out what is it going to take for us to, at scale, get to a place where you are at right now and even getting better at it. Because that to me is a path to success for all of us. And by helping ourselves, Black women, by us helping ourselves, we will help other people the way we've been doing it forever, but we're going to get paid to do it, which means that we can start thinking about this generational wealth space, which is the place that we're stuck. We don't have it. I know it's a big question, but um, I just, it's something I'm struggling with the last, especially over the last year. You have to do what makes you happy. You just have to do what makes you happy. That's it. My job is hard. It is stressful. I'm traumatized every day, but I love the work that I do. I love the spaces in which I'm in. I'm proud of myself. Um, I think therapy is great. I'm in therapy for the rest of my life because I traumatize myself daily, right? Doing this work. So I have those support systems, but we have to realize that we have a part in this too. And so ask yourself, what do you need to be happy? And then to have phrases ready to go if you need them for the workplace, you know, or you're negotiating a contract. Just want to know this is on par with, you know, one of your white consultants or one of the white employees. I heard you're working on pay equity. And so am I getting paid the same as my white counterpart? Because when people start putting stuff out in the business, then that's what you use. You go look at their diversity statement because all like 90% of companies have a diversity statement now. You look at that statement and you use it. So with the diversity statement you're having, what does that mean for me, supervisor? Using their words. And when they're like, well, this is not a, we're not going to talk if it's not a race thing. We're not going to get into that. Then you can say, no, it's definitely not. I'm, I'm just talking about my value, my humanity, my equality. And then being comfortable, being uncomfortable and having these discussions, potentially walking away from money, walking away from a job, leaving a job, GTFO, move on, go somewhere else. We don't have to be where they want us to be. We don't have to. We have more power. It's exhausting. It's tiring. But we have more power than even the civil rights movement because of social media and technology. That takes us, imagine what the civil rights movement would be like if we had Twitter, <laughs> right? If we had Instagram, 
if people could, you know, video things like we had, we didn't, we didn't have that for the civil rights movement. And that was profound. We got the civil rights act of 1964 as a result of that. But now someone can figure something out around the world in minutes. So we have more people who are advocating for our humanity and equality. But if we don't believe our own humanity and equality, there's nothing I can do. I just have two more questions for you. And these are light. I want to know what your favorite cereal is that you discovered during the pandemic of 2020. I don't discover cereal. I I don't. (laughs) I don't. If I want cereal, it's the cereal that I feel like eating. So you don't have a favorite cereal? I don't have a favorite cereal. I switch it up. It could be honey bunches of oats. It could be Fruit Loops, but there was no cereal discovery. Oh, I love it. Fruit Loops. And what is the number one app that you use for branding, social media, and image work? Um, I just use Instagram. That's it. That's it. That's perfect. It, yeah. <laughs> All right. That's perfect. And then what's your dream vacation if you have one? Dream vacations are always just by the beach, um, clear water good weather. I'm open to the beaches, but it'll be a very long time until I get to go to a beach. So I know I feel the same way. Well, everyone, listen, um, you can learn a lot more about Akilah's work at changekaday.com or on IG at C-H-A-N-G-E-C-A-D-E-T on Instagram and subscribe to the Honest Field Guide on your favorite podcast platform and never miss an episode. You can support my podcast also by being a monthly subscriber on Anchor FM. So thank you to our audience for listening into the Honest Field Guide podcast. I am Ginja. I'm Akila. Talk with you next time. Original music is written by and provided courtesy of Utah Carol. Follow Honest Field Guide on Instagram and Twitter. The opinions expressed on the Honest Field Guide are opinions only 